So, welcome this morning. Um, yeah, it's been a while since I spoke in church, and, and uh, like Joel was so good to say, uh, Tyler and Aaron are in Florida last or Florida right now um, on this retreat. Tyler texted me last night. I was I was working. I worked till midnight last night. So if I look tired, that's what it is. But Tyler texted me at ten thirty. Uh, to tell, let me know he was praying for me and to make sure he wanted, he said, you know, are you good? Are you ready for tomorrow? And I thought two things at first, does he not know we're Mennonites? I mean, it's 1030 at night. Like if I weren't working, I was supposed to be in bed. You know, like he is used to his West Coast time, right? And then second, I wanted to text him back and say, oh, that's tomorrow? You know, and just, just see what he said. He got on a plane and came back here, but I was, I was kind and I said, no, I think we're ready for it. But any explanation? Do things. If you um, if you've talked much to Tyler, Tyler is really organized. And one of the things Tyler started to do when he got here was every week you might notice that we have a reading, and that reading is based on the lectionary. And and the lectionary is something that that I'd never really heard of before a few years ago. And that is a it's a set schedule. And and churches of different denominations across the globe follow it every week. And every week there are three or four readings. And the general idea is if you follow this then every three years, you will work yourself through the Bible. And so, so each week, each year, there's a, years A, B, and C, and each week, all the churches that follow this, they have the same scripture readings each Sunday. So it's a, it's a great way, really, to, to, to bind that family of Christ together across the globe. And also, if you're, for those of us who are putting together sermons, it's nice because what Tyler wants us to do is to take that sermon from that reading. And so today's reading is Genesis 45, what, what Leanna was just so kind to read. The thing is, is that when I chose this, Tyler, you know, contacted me and said, hey, can you give, can you give the sermon on the 20th? And I said, that's great. Let me look on the lectionary and see what the choices are, see what I'm going to go from. And boy, Genesis 45 came up. I just thought it was, it was I think God spoke to me that this, this, was, this was a great passage for this group because, because that's really what I wanted to choose on, something that, that, that I needed to hear and that I thought, boy, LifeBridge would want to hear. But but the thing is, is that Genesis 45, you know, as, as Leona read it, it is the climax, right? It's the culmination. It's kind of that final act of this drama with, with Joseph and his brothers. And it, it's a really awkward place to start. And I think that we have to go back because it, it almost doesn't make sense there, those, those first verses, unless, unless you really look at the rest of that story. And so I want to I really start at Genesis 35. And Genesis 35 is the death of Rachel. And if you're familiar with that story, you know, Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife. Jacob had multiple as, as sad as this is to say, J- Rachel is the one that Jacob always loved. And, and this is a family that was plagued by favoritism early from day one. Um, and, and, and part of that is it's emblematic here that Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. And Rachel had, Rachel had two sons. The older was Joseph and the younger was Benjamin. And unfortunately, if you know uh, the story, Rachel died just after childbirth with Benjamin. Jacob had a total of 12 sons, and, and Joseph and Benjamin were, were the younger of those. And so it starts out with in, in, in here in chapters in Gen- Genesis 35 um, with this, this death of Rachel, and then it shows how Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And that's because Joseph was Rachel's son. And, and, and you can see Jacob being a little, uh, a little stressed with Benjamin, right? Because, because Rachel died just after giving birth to Benjamin. So there was, there's that element of sadness there. But Joseph was clearly the favorite. In Genesis 37, we start with Joseph at 17 years old, bringing a bad report about his brothers, his older brothers, to Jacob. Basically, it starts with Joseph 
telling on his brothers. It's not really the way we think of a story about a hero of the Bible starting with him, with him telling on his older brothers. And then after that, Joseph, he has a couple of dreams, and in these dreams, they're figurative dreams, but the interpretation is clear that his family someday was going to bow down to him. And Joseph had that awkward ability to tell people this, so he told his family that that was telling them that someday they were going to serve him, they were going to bow down to him. And, and as you can imagine, that just made kind of an awkward situation even worse. And then, and then Jacob had this coat of many, many colors made for Joseph. And you, you know that if you're, if you're a fan of Broadway musicals, which I am not, you might be familiar with that, or if you're a fan of Dolly Parton, which I clearly am, you would know that. You youth can look that up later. All right. But this story, there's two stories going on in this. And the first is, it's that, that physical story right there of Joseph and his brothers and what's about to happen, where they're going to go to Egypt and they're going to meet Joseph. But there is also, and I say this just to set the table, there is a spiritual story that applies throughout time here. And in that story, Joseph is used as a type. He is used as a model, and he is going to predict what happens with Jesus Christ and how we, as the family of Christ, interact with him. So I want you to keep that in mind, this type that Joseph serves. Finally then, at kind of toward the end of this, uh, the initial drama, Jacob sends Joseph out to his brothers, and he's supposed to check on them in the field. And the brothers, they get together, and they decide they're going to kill Joseph. That This is it. They've got their chance. They're alone. Dad's not there. And thankfully, the oldest brother, Reuben, he talks them out of this. And what, what, they, what they promise to do is that they sell him into slavery. And because of this, he ends up in Egypt. And again, just because of hard work, because of blessings from God, because of his trustworthiness, Joseph, as a slave in Egypt, he works his way up in the house of his master. His master was Potiphar. He was the captain of Pharaoh's guards. And then eventually, once he reaches that top position in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife accuses him of, uh, of assault uh, unjustly, and Joseph ends up in prison. And the whole pattern repeats itself, right? Joseph works hard. He's trustworthy. God blesses him, and he moves up in the ranks of the prison. And eventually, he is freed and we all know this because Potiphar has these two dreams. And nobody in, nobody in Egypt can interpret these dreams. And one of Potiphar's, I'm sorry, Pharaoh, one of Pharaoh's servants remembers Joseph and says, I, I know a young Hebrew who can interpret dreams. And he's called before Pharaoh. And he doesn't just interpret these dreams. These dreams mean that there's going to be seven years of, of fat harvest, seven years of great harvest, and then seven years of, of famine that would be all across the Middle East and Egypt. Joseph doesn't just interpret them, but Joseph has a plan. He's got a plan where they would store up harvests for seven years during those seven fat years, and then during the seven years of famine, they would, they would take, that, take that and they would sell it. That's a little echo, isn't it? You can turn that. Oh, great. And they would sell that. They would sell that extra food, and Pharaoh would actually trade, trade his stored up grain for that food for land. All right, and through this way, Pharaoh was going to actually own the land of Egypt. He wouldn't just be king of Egypt, he'd be the owner. And so he promoted, he promoted Joseph to be that position of prime minister. And then the famine reaches Canaan. And once it reaches Canaan, Jacob sends Joseph's older ten brothers. He doesn't send Benjamin. He sends the older ten brothers down to Egypt looking for food. Joseph, when they arrive, Joseph sees his brothers there. But, and he recognizes them. Because you think about it, ten guys traveling together who are brothers, they stand out. This is 22 years later. And Joseph, he sees them, and they don't recognize him because he's dressed like an Egyptian. And if, if, you, if you're familiar with uh, any of the uh, ancient movies set in ancient Egypt, they, they really dress that way. Like the nobility, the, the elite in Egypt, they would typically shave their heads. They would wear these wigs made out of horse hair or human hair, this really thick plaited hair. And the guys would wear eye makeup. 
They'd put charcoal over their eyes and they'd put this green mineral under their eyes to accentuate their eyes. They did not look like, like they did uh, in, in ancient Israel. You know, if, if I disappeared for a year and y'all didn't see I was wearing a wig and eye makeup, you probably would not recognize me, right? So they don't recognize him, but Joseph, Joseph knows those are his brothers. And he puts them in jail for three days. And we'll go to Genesis 42, chapter 42, verses 20, 21 through 22. This is the brothers talking. They're in, they're in jail. They're in custody. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. I mean, you think about this, 22 years later, and the minute something bad happens, what's the first thing they think about? They think about how they wronged Joseph. It's 22 years. You can imagine, after all these years, they're still haunted by that sin. Think about all the times they must have just thought about this and ruminated and talked about it. And what's interesting is they never told their dad. They told Jacob that he must have been carried off by a, by a wild animal and killed. But all this time, they've been obsessed with it. Joseph, then he releases all of them but Simeon. He gives them grain. And he tells them to go back to their dad. They had told him that they had a younger brother and a father back in Israel, the land of Canaan. And he told them to bring Benjamin, to bring the younger brother and come back. And then he also puts their, monies back, their money back in their sacks without them knowing it. Brothers go back to Canaan. They find Jacob and they tell him the story. And again, they don't know that's Joseph that they saw. They just said that it was the prime minister of Egypt. But Jacob refuses to send Benjamin. The orders are bring Send Benjamin or, you'll, or Simeon stays here and you won't get more food. But he just wasn't willing to risk Jacob. I'm sorry, Jacob wasn't willing to risk Benjamin because that was the one remaining son of Rachel. But eventually, the food runs out because there's seven years of famine and this is only that second year. And so Jacob relents and he sends them back. The brothers go back and they take Benjamin. They get there and Joseph recognizes them. He brings them into the house for a meal. Serves them and the next day says, go here's your food. But this time, he has another plan, right? And he has the servants again put, that, put that, the, the money they brought back in their sacks, and he puts his own silver cup in Benjamin's bag. They have no idea about this and sends them on their way. Joseph is testing them. This is, this is really the start of this test. Joseph tells the servants, and, okay, right after him, catch up with them and accuse them of stealing this silver cup. And so, this, this moves ahead to chapter 44, verses 9 through 12. The steward catches up with them, Joseph's head servant, and he accuses them of stealing the cup. And the brothers respond, if any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, this is the steward speaking, he said, let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. This is the test, right? This is, this is where Joseph wanted to know, are these those same guys that sold me into slavery 22 years ago? Have they changed? Are they worthy of my trust? And this is like, this is the ultimate test, right? Like, this isn't a school test. I like school tests. I was, I was good at them, right? And, and because I could read that question and see what they were getting at because I knew, it, I knew it was being tested. But these guys, they didn't know they were being tested. When I was, uh, when I was in the Army, I had, a, uh, I had a sergeant, and he would do this thing where 
he would go to the shower room at night when we were all in it getting hot showers after a really terrible day, and he would turn off the hot water. And he just wanted to see what you do. He just wanted to see how you handle that. And then he took the test one step further because what he would do was first, he would tell someone, me typically, that he was going to do it. And he'd see if I'd tell everybody else that he was going to do it if we'd stay out of the showers. And I always passed the test because that man scared me. But uh, <clears throat> Joseph mirrored that test, right? His test was perfect because what he was seeing was 22 years ago, these guys sold me to slavery in Egypt. And if they, were, if, if they just sell out Benjamin now, Benjamin is left as a slave here in Egypt, just like me. But the brothers, they passed the test. They were changed men because what did they do? Quote, they loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. When Joseph offers to let the brothers go and keep Benjamin as a slave, Judah steps forward. So this is the next, the next scene here. Judah steps forward and he wants to take Benjamin's place as Joseph's slave. And this is, this is another picture, right? Because Judah, you know, we know Judah is the father of the tribe of Judah. I guess the, new, the name makes sense. But that tribe of Judah is where Jesus Christ would trace his earthly lineage. Jesus Christ was the son of God, but his parents came out of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is referred to as the line of Judah. And here Judah is stepping in and saying, no, I will bear that, pen that penalty for my brother Benjamin. Like Christ bears the penalty of, of our sin later as he, as he hangs on the Christ and suffers that penalty of death that we deserve. It is a picture of Christ's sacrifice in the future. And his brothers, though, they are changed men. They, they've changed. They're not the same guys of 22 years ago. But, but they are broken men. You think back to earlier when, when the brothers said, surely we are being punished because of our brother. Now Judah says, quote, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Judah isn't talking about the, that guilt of stealing a silver bowl. He wasn't talking about the guilt of stealing money in their sacks. He was talking about the guilt of Joseph 22 years before. And he's, he's saying this to Joseph without, Joseph without him realizing that that's Joseph. He's thinking back to this sin 22 years before. Judah and his brothers are completely broken, and their only hope is mercy from Joseph. So today's, today's scripture, this, this, this chapter 45, it is a narrative of reconciliation and restoration, and divide and sovereignty. But that, that begins here with brokenness. And that, that's why I backed up here. That's why I started here, because I think that, that the process of brokenness, that, that principle of brokenness, is absolutely fundamental to us as Christians. Um, Judah and his brothers, they realize their absolute brokenness, their utter helplessness. And that is where healing and reconciliation begin, both spiritually and emotionally. And this is near to me. This is, this is, you know, this is on my heart because, because what am I? I'm an ER doctor, and I deal with broken people every single day. And I can tell you, it's, I can see broken people. I see when they come in, I, I see people who aren't broken. And there is a huge difference. There's a huge difference because broken people, like others, they understand that they are no longer in control, that no amount of effort or manipulation can fix what they just got into. Broken people stop blaming. They stop seeing the problem as the fault of someone else. They say, like the brothers, surely we are being punished because of our brother. The broken understand that while their family might have handled disagreements with drama, might have abused alcohol, might have been unable to maintain a steady job, it is no longer their family that makes them do this. Listen, it's, a, it's not my father's fault. He, my father is not responsible for me taking my next drink. And it's not my mother that shouts at my kids. That's all on me. 
the next decision I make is my own. It has nothing to do with the way I was raised. It has nothing to do with my circumstances. Brokenness is the manipulation. It is the surrender of efforts to deny the problem or to cover it up or to continue the pattern. It is the realization of helplessness. And that is the beginning. And that's why I go back here. That is the beginning of the gospel. That is the beginning of the good news. That is the beginning of Christ's sacrifice for us. When I was growing up, I worked for a, a family electrical business. And working in construction brings you into contact with some crazy people, some wild people, some of the best people I ever knew I worked with, and some of the scariest people I ever knew I worked with. And when I was in high school, two guys came into our life, that came into my life through brokenness. Well, should have been. The first guy came to us, he had a, he had a chemical problem because he had that dubious honor that within 12 hours he got two DUIs. And he was humiliated. He lost his job. Um, he came to us. He couldn't, he couldn't drive except to work. And he had the humili humiliating task that at the end of the workday when he got in his car, he had to blow into a breathalyzer to start his car. And he was broken. And he knew it. And he, uh, he threw himself into work. And he threw himself into church. And within about two years, you would not have believed who this man was. It was biblically, he was as far as the east was from the west of who he was. And, and if you met him today, you, you'd never know where, you'd never know what the battle he'd been through because he was broken and, and he came to Christ. The other guy came about the same time and it was, he came to us because back at this time, the uh, workers' comp entrance in Ohio had started the drug-free workplace. And if you, uh, if you worked for a drug-free workplace company, you got, a, you got a discount on your workers' comp insurance. But any of your employees could be randomly called for, for a drug test anytime. And this guy, he'd had a drug test and he passed it. And then about six months later, he got chosen for another one. And he said, you know what? I'm going to stand on principle here because I shouldn't have to do this. I've already passed it. And it's a 45-minute drive and I'm not going to do it. And the rules were the rules. So he lost his job with another construction company. But he, he pulled some strings. He had some friends. And they contacted our company and said, you know, these, this guy's a good guy. He's just standing on principle. You know, he needs a job and, and, and he's worth it. And so he came to work with us, and it was obvious. It was obvious. He was not broken. It was obvious that his problem was not principal, and his problem was not a 45-minute drive. His problem was he was never going to pass a drug test. And he, he, he flopped out. And he wasn't broken. He was still manipulating. He was still grasping, and he was still trying to pull strings. Brokenness is where healing begins, and brokenness is where we come to the cross. When we realize that we are broken, we realize that nothing we ourselves do will ever free us from the slavery of sin. And when we realize that, our only hope is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then that, that is just the right, that is where reconciliation begins with brokenness. In, in Romans 5, 6 through 11, and I'm sorry, this is a really long reading. Paul writes, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul writes there, while we were, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's us, right? We are the ungodly. While we were still sinners, we are powerless, ungodly, ugly sinners, all of us. And we are only saved by the mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Judah and his brothers were powerless. 
Their fate was out of their control. They were at the mercy of Joseph, their brother, whom they had wronged horribly. And it's brokenness now that begins with reconciliation, that, that, that leads to reconciliation. And that's where chapter 45 begins. So finally, after all this, I've caught up to where, I, where the reading began for the day. So if, if, we go, if we go forward, we're talking about reconciliation now, right? Reconciliation, uh, it's used interchangeably, and I'll probably mess the two words up here, reconciliation and restoration. And, and this, is, this is this picture of reconciliation. Joseph and his brothers, they have to kiss and make up. They have to reconcile. But it's restoration because there is a broken relationship between Joseph and his family. They have to restore that relationship. And this is a picture, again, of us with God. We have sinned. We have to reconcile with God. We have sinned and we have broken that relationship with God. And it wasn't our choice. We were born into it. It was our choice. But, but every single human being ever has sinned. And, and that, that broke that relationship. And we have to restore that relationship. So verses 1 through 2 says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all sins, And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. I got hung up when I was younger with this, with, the, with, the, with these verses. And the reason was, Joseph, like Daniel, you know, these are heroes of the Bible. These are great, strong men. And I have always had an issue with the drama here. And, and, it's, and, it's, and I realize as I get older, it's my, it's my problem. But it, it, it puts a block there as I read this. And it, and it shows up other times uh, in Scripture Drama is a thing that I think we as Midwestern, uh, especially males, we, we have this masculinity issue. It does sit. Um, drama, everybody has a different uh, tolerance for drama. Every culture does. Every family does. And we have more dramatic members of our family than, uh, the, than some others. Um, when, I, when I was growing up, my dad would tell me this story. His grandfather was, uh, was from the Middle East, and he would take him to, he'd take him to high school. He'd, not to high school, to elementary school. Norway High School in Sterling, Ohio, and he'd pull up in his farm pickup, and my dad would try to get out, and Grandpa would pull him over and hug him and kiss him on the face, right in front of all these farm boys from Sterling. And it just, and it was cringeworthy. It's cringeworthy to this day to me. And my dad loved his grandfather, but it still kind of bothered him. And it was like that whole drive to school, he'd be just a little uncomfortable knowing what was coming. We're talking, we have a small group going, and we're talking about feeling our feelings. That's one of the things that, and, and I, I'm, I'm still uncomfortable with it. We have this stiff upper lip uh, that we believe in, um, in with Northern Europeans, right? It's just that weird thing that's, that's bred into us. And I do really feel like this, this emotion, this lack of emotion, I realize more and more, it's not biblical, right? Now, nobody wants to see their ER doctor scream and say, we're all going to die. But I probably could do a better job of feeling my feelings. Yeah. So... What would the brothers think, though? Because right here, Joseph says, have everyone leave my presence. The interpreter's left. All this time, Joseph's been using an interpreter, right? He'd, he's been playing this role of an Egyptian politician. And there's, there's 11 brothers now with Joseph. And I'm sure some of them are smarter than others. Some of them are quicker than others. And those quicker ones realize right then, he speaks Hebrew. You know, don't you think like for a second they thought, what have we been saying in front of this guy when we didn't think that he understood us? All right? Verse 3, Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. When Leona read, she read from the New King James Version, and that said dismayed. And dismayed is probably the most undersold word 
because they were terrified. 22 years ago, they sold this guy into slavery. They considered killing him right in front of him. They sold him into slavery. And for 22 years, it's tortured them, right? So yeah, now they're, now they're terrified because this man that you were wronged, you're completely at his mercy. You're under his thumb. Um, but what was Joseph's first question, right? It was, is my father still living? And, and every time that I read a story like this, I, I try to put myself in that position of him being there. 22 years and you haven't seen your dad. 22 years and he wants to see Jacob. And you think about that as the brothers again, you realize he misses dad. And, and I think that's going to make me feel worse and not, not sad, but even more terrified because Joseph is showing some human emotion here. And then verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. So Joseph has to repeat himself, right? Because that's the second time he said, come close to me. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. He doesn't say, I'm your brother Joseph, Rachel's son. He doesn't say, I'm your brother Joseph, the guy with a multicolored coat. He says, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. And he's reminding them subtly, in maybe a little passive-aggressive way, that he remembers, that he hasn't forgotten. He was Joseph, the one that you sold into slavery. Well, I, but this is where things start to shift, and this is where I think the message changes. Because we started with brokenness, and then we moved on to reconciliation and restoration, and there's still that process going on. But right now is, is where I think like that, what can we do item starts. Because in church services, you know, all through our, our childhood, in, in young adult years. Beth and I have talked about this. A lot of times in, in church we talk about, hey, this is what you ought to do, and this is what you ought to do, and there are these great general ideas, but sometimes it's just really hard to figure out how you do them, what you base this on. Because right here I'm telling you, well, Joseph is a model of restoration and reconciliation, and you've got to do that. But it's really tough sometimes to say, well, how do you do that? How do, we, how do we forgive? How do we restore relationships in our lives. Because right now, we're looking at Joseph, a man wronged in almost an unimaginable way 22 years ago. How can he forgive? How can reconciliation happen again? How can we do that in our own lives? How do we forgive those who have wronged us? Right? And, and, and I mean, I want a concrete answer. And, um, and Joseph has it. It's, it's out of Joseph's wisdom, his understanding of the principle of God's sovereignty. Verses 5 through 8, Joseph says, And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household, and ruler of Egypt. Those weren't hollow words. Like, that wasn't Joseph just, just trying to flatter them and put salve in an old wound. He really meant that. Joseph realized that God was sovereign. Um, God used this horrible crime, this terrible sin, to save a family. It was a family that would become a kingdom, a family that, that is today an ethnic group at the center of this world, really. And this a family who, who the King, King David would come from, a family that eventually, again, Jesus Christ would trace his earthly origins through. History is history's crazy. You know, we've got all these twists and turns and all the what-ifs and all the alternative endings. That's a popular genre now for books, these alternative endings like The Man in the High Castle. But the truth is, 
there are alternative endings in history because God, God is sovereign and his will is going to be done. There's no, there's no twist of fate that surprised God. God's not surprised by elections. God's not surprised by COVID. God is not surprised by what I decided to wear this morning, right? Reconciliation, forgiveness, they are, they are possible when we realize, when we recognize, when we accept that God is sovereign, that nothing escapes his view and nothing escapes his plan. Every hurt you have ever had was seen by God and was used by God. Uh, Joseph, Joseph doesn't accept this grudgingly. He absolutely embraces it. He says to his brothers, do not be distressed, right? Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves. And this then also speaks to our forgiveness in Christ. Joseph is forgiving his brothers much like we are forgiven. Like in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. We're, we're, we're commanded to do it. Whether we want to believe it or not, we have all sinned, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And sin is a wronging against God. We, in, in our men's group a few weeks ago, we went through Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a prayer that David had to God. And it was, it was a prayer that David had after, after the prophet Nathan came in, good name, after the prophet Nathan came and confronted David about that adulterous affair with Bathsheba, an affair that eventually led to David having Bathsheba's husband killed just to make matters worse. In that prayer, David says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. And you think about how, how strange it is, how backwards that is, because we think, no, no, not David, you sinned, you sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, you sinned against Bathsheba. But, but no, God, G, David says, against you, you only have I sinned. And the point there is, all sin is against God, and yet God forgives us freely through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, through his blood. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we can our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Joseph tells his brothers to forgive themselves, just like God has forgiven us. And we have to take that same advice now. We have to take that same advice, we have to accept his forgiveness, and we have to move on. And just like Joseph says, don't be distressed, don't be angry with ourselves, don't dwell, don't spend a lifetime obsessing about, about past sin, because in essence, that equates to lacking faith in that forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, which is a godly, serious issue, right? Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross to forgive us our sins. We shouldn't lack faith in that. Then, you know, the next question is, what about the sin that started this? What about Judah and the brothers selling Joseph uh, into, uh, into slavery? Is it okay? Is it okay to sin if good should come out of that? In Romans 6-12, through 12, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, God forbid. Sin's wrong. All sin's wrong. The, the, outcome, the outcome does not justify the means in this case. Sin is sin. Um, but while sin is wrong, it is against God, as we showed. God uses it to further his plan. There is no sin so evil that God can't use it. It, it reminds me of the old riddle, can God create a rock so large that he can't lift it, right? Joseph here, Joseph could see the bigger picture. Um, he realized that, that God had a plan, and there was just there was no way around that plan. And what happened to Joseph ended up being part of that larger plan. He could see life's twists and turns in the context of God's plans. And, and we, as followers of Christ, we have to be able to, to we have to be able to see that bigger picture, and to accept that hurt comes as part of that bigger picture. Finally, back to back to verses nine through eleven. Joseph says, "Now hurry back to my father, and say to him." This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. 
You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. So Joseph is giving them instructions. He is taking for granted that right now that relationship works, that it's restored, that they're going to listen to him. He says, go get dad and go get your families and come back. Come back for provision. Joseph's going to provide for them. Joseph has forgiven his family. They've been reconciled. And now he's making a place for them. He's making a place for them. And again, if that sounds familiar, if you go to John 14, 2, Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. God's plan for us is not, is not just forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, but it's also provision. Um, and this illustrates the, the New Testament principles of mercy and grace. And they're contrasted to justice because if you think about justice, Joseph, way back at the start of this, Joseph was playing that role of the Egyptian. It, it, it was who Joseph was. He was, he was a Joseph. Joseph was the uh, Egyptian prime minister. But in that role, when he was acting, what did he say? He said, Benjamin, you stole my silver bowl. You're going to be my slave. And that was justice. It seems heavy. It's a lot. That's a, it's a pretty serious it's a pretty serious punishment, but at the time, that was reasonable. So justice was, you stole my bowl, you're my slave. But then when he exposed himself to who, for who he was, their brother, Joseph, he showed mercy. Right? He forgave. He didn't just forgive that, that sin of the bowl. What he forgave them was for 22 years ago for selling, selling him into slavery. That was the idea that they sold, they sold him into slavery. They sinned. Honestly, as prime minister, they, he could have had them put to death, but he showed mercy. He forgave them. And then, and mercy, mercy is the act of withholding deserved punishment. Joseph didn't kill them. He didn't punish them as they deserved. And then he showed grace. And grace is the act of endowing unmerited favor. Grace is a gift. What did Joseph do? He gave them the land of Goshen right there. I've, I've heard there, there's a, an illustration that gets used a lot that justice, mercy, and grace are illustrated by a, by a traffic stop uh, where if you're speeding, you're going 80 miles an hour in the interstate and a police officer pulls you over, justice is if he gives you a ticket. That's justice. Mercy is if he lets you off with a warning and says, don't do it again. And grace is if he buys you dinner afterwards. And that's what Joseph did. He, he provided for them. And our, our grace, you know, we go back to um, those, those biblical, the, uh, the biblical principles. We look at Romans 3.23 and Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is part of the Romans road. And Paul then in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Justice for the wages of sin is death. That would be justice. Mercy and grace are for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the grace of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's all pictured right here as Joseph works with his brothers as he interacts with them. God's plan for us, again, is forgiveness, reconciliation, but also provision. This is where I wrap up. Um, when I put this all together, and, I, and it takes me a long time to put together a message, despite what it seems like, um, but when I put this together, I really thought this was a message about, about reconciliation and restoration. And then as, as I've worked on this, God has worked on me too. And um, what he's worked on me about is the part about divine sovereignty. And, I, and I'll tell you why, because we're on the 20th of February. It is, we're about two weeks away from the two-year anniversary 
of Ohio being shut down, right? The, the shelter-in-place order, which seems funny to think about now because we, yeah, we, I sheltered in place. My place just happened to be uh, closer to Rural King than at my house at the time. But things got shut down, and I had a conversation that week. The next week, one of my friends, Jack Hale, who is a surgeon who's, who's uh, on mission uh, in Africa now, Jack was going to come here and speak. But Governor DeWine, you know, said, okay, we're going we're to shut everything down. And, and Jack, another doctor, and I talked that week, and Jack said, well, I just hope everything's open by, by Easter. And we've, we've lost two Easter's now. And I never could have predicted this was going to last two years. But if you had said to me at that time, this pandemic's going to go two years, what do you think that's going to do for you? What do you think that's going to do for your professional practice, right? I, I mean, very callously, what I would have said was, it's going to be good for business right? Two years of a pandemic, two years of people seeking medical care. How could that be a bad thing? But I stand for you today. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm seeing half the patients today that I saw two years ago, all right? And, and what I have struggled with is I, I worry. I lose sleep. I try to control the situation because I don't know what this means for me. I don't know what this means for our doctors. I, and I don't know what it means for medicine. I got, I got at least two sons that they think they want to be doctors. I don't know what that means for them because, because my life has changed because of a pandemic. I never saw it coming. And I worry, and I lose sleep, and I grasp. And I realize as I was working this, that the reason was is because I struggle with sovereignty. I have a problem accepting that God knew this. I have a problem accepting that God knows really what I'm going to do for a living. I have a problem accepting that God's got my best interest at heart. I have an issue with that. And God's worked on it through, through a message on I, I God's, God's pretty awesome about the way he works on hearts. I really appreciate it. Um, but that's it. That's what I got for you guys today. And I hope you guys reflect on it. If, if you can just, just think about that in your life. How does, how does God's sovereignty help you, help you to, to, uh, to forgive, to reconcile, to restore? I'll close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your chance to talk today. And thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Joseph and his brothers. Um, thank you for Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd bless this day as we go about after this, and we ask that you'd watch over Tyler and Aaron. Please get them home safe. Please bless them with a great time and a true restoration and retreat for them. In Jesus Christ's precious name, we pray amen. And as the band comes up, a couple things to keep in mind. Please remember there are baskets for giving at the exits. And so if you can, we'd appreciate it. Thanks, guys.